Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. First um, John chapter 3, verse 4 through 10. Uh, this is where we're going to be working from. And this, and I do mean work because this is a work, working kind of sermon. This is not a, uh, this is, this is it's not, it's not, it's not just a fun sermon. Every sermon's fun, but this one's work, uh, and you'll see here in a minute. Um, we actually have it in two different um, translate, uh, translation versions for you, and so the, 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 this will allow our, our slide people in the back to get some exercise. So the first um, version is uh, New King James, and this is what I typically read from. So let's read it first in New King James, and then we'll go back to my wife's favorite version, which is the Amplified Version, um, which will take about our whole sermon time. So that'll be the whole 40 minutes right there, just reading through the Amplified Version. But um, anyway, First uh, John chapter 3, verse 4. What do you mean? What are you talking about? After my introduction, it is 40 minutes. The intro just takes a while. Uh, Everyone who practices sin, John says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Is that that the one that's up there? Yeah. All right. Lawlessness. And sin, he says, is lawlessness. Oh, do we have the, that's, that's the Amplified. Let's, let's, let's skip down. We'll, we'll get to that one here in a minute. But first, let's start with the... <laughs> I know it's long. Um, let's start with the New King James. Uh, the slightly quicker one. Uh, you got it? Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe we didn't make a New King James one. All right, well, let me, let me pull up my, my Bible app here, and I'll read from New King James. And you guys can just follow along in your minds um, if you have a Bible. I, I, I prefer the New King James because it's uh, more succinct, um, and uh, it gives you a better overall version of it, and then we'll get into the Amplified. So go ahead and hold on to the Amplified. Whoever commits sin, he says, also, also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. (laughs) Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, just as Christ, is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. (laughs) For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, he says, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So, Father, Lord, we ask for you to shine some wisdom into your word. Open up the eyes of our heart. 
that we might, in the ears of our heart, that we might hear what your spirit is saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now go ahead and go back to the Amplified. I would like to read it in the Amplified because it does help explain some things that are in the original Greek that you might not notice just in the blunt English. Um, he says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And then in parentheses, it says ignoring, this is what the Amplified has added, lawlessness is ignoring God's law by action or neglect or by tolerating wrongdoing, specifically in yourself, being unrestrained by his commands and his will. So, law, so sin is to throw off the restraint of God's law. If you think freedom, if you think God's version of freedom is to be without law, you're missing the whole point. God's version of freedom is not to escape from all regulations and all rules. It's not to uh, get rid of all institutions. That's, uh, that's socialism, I think. Uh, it, it is not to tear down every authority and make you an authority to yourself. That's lawlessness. And he says that any, any sin is basically lawlessness. It's ignoring the laws or the commands of God. And it's living in such a way, I like this, being unrestrained by his commands and his will. If you're, if you're a Christian today and you don't feel any, any restraints, <laughs> then you're in shaky ground. He says, you know that he appeared or made, in, came in visible form as a man in order to take away sins. Did you know that? Did you know that he appeared in order? Did you know that Jesus came to earth in order to take away sins? It's so important that, that, we, that we understand that, that we grab a hold of that, because some people believe that Jesus came in order to forgive sins. But here he says, no, he came in order to take away sins. I heard a preacher just this week uh, on, uh, on, on Instagram talking about how you can be forgiven but not free. And, and how if you've just been forgiven, you'll get to heaven, but that God's got more for you. He has freedom. I, 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 feel, like first, I feel like John would disagree with that. That freedom is not the bonus round of Christianity. It's not like, uh, well, you know, it's, 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 there's this extra. It's like the last fry in the bag, you know, in the McDonald's bag. Like, freedom is not the last fry in the McDonald's bag. Freedom is the entire Happy Meal. That it is for freedom that we have been set free, and that whoever the sun sets free is free indeed. And so to have a level of Christianity that only involves forgiveness without freedom means that you will have to continually keep coming to the well of forgiveness because, well, the same sin keeps welling up inside of you. And so you never actually get free in that, in, in that level. If you believe that freedom is a bonus for super special Christians, that one day maybe if they're good enough, if they have enough faith, maybe they can achieve it, then you're missing the point of the gospel. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is drawn near to you. And that's more than just forgiveness. It is forgiveness, but then it is freedom from the very thing that you needed to ask forgiveness for. And this is the good news of the gospel, that he came in order to take away or remove from you sin. And in him there is absolutely no sin, for he has neither the sin nature nor he has committed sinful acts. That's all in parentheses in the Amplified. That's not actually in the text, but that's what he's talking about. That there's no sin in Christ because he didn't have the sin nature like you and I are born with. And then also, he didn't commit any sin. 
Uh, he lived a perfect life. There is absolutely no sin in him, for he has neither the sin nature nor has committed sinful acts worthy of blame. No one who abides in him, therefore, who remains united in fellowship with him. And that's key. Maintaining fellowship with Christ. No one who remains united in fellowship with him deliberately, knowingly, and habitually practices sin. And they're getting that. Uh, the Amplified is, get, is getting some of those, those words, deliberately, knowingly, and, and habitually, uh, from the original language. The original language, he says, whoever sins. Now, we might think that that means whoever sins once. But that's not the case. The word sin there is in the present tense. It means ongoing. Whoever continually walks in sin. We know what happens when somebody sins once. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that. He says, if anyone should sin once, we have an advocate with the Father. So we, we already know what happens if any Christian should sin once or twice or, or a few times. We have an advocate with the Father for a punctiliar kind of sin. But this is not a punctiliar. This, isn't a, this is not a point on a map. This is a line. This is linear type of sin. This is ongoing which is why they use the word habitually. Technically, it's not in the original text, but it does kind of explain what he's talking about. And deliberately and knowingly is also a part of it. Because lawlessness, you're not breaking a law if you don't know the law exists. <laughs> the policeman can't pull you over if there's no speed limit sign, right? And, uh, you know, I've tried to argue that there wasn't a speed limit sign before, and it turns out there was. Sometimes there's one and you don't see it, um, but you still get a ticket for that, by the way, just FYI. Uh, but if there's no sign, if there's no expression of the law, then there's no guilt. So that's why it says deliberately and knowingly. So you, you, you know what to do, you know what is right, or you know what is wrong, and you go ahead and do wrong anyway, or you do not do what you know is right. Habitually sins, he says, whoever does that has never seen him or, or known him. And then verse 7 is really the key, and he, and he, he, he shares this several times in, in, in 1 John. He says, little children. And that, by the way, is a, is a term of endearment, which is why it says, believers, dear ones, do not let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anyone deceive you. And this is key because John is writing to the church, not just a church, but the church at large. This letter was to be passed from church to church, from house to house, from small group to small group, because there were teachers that were rising up in the church, which he addresses a couple of different times, who were trying to deceive them. And they were trying to deceive them. I don't think they were like evil people necessarily who were, you know, out to deceive people. They themselves had become deceived and they were out to help people. The most dangerous, some of those dangerous people are people who are convinced that they're right when they're not. And so these guys were out to help people. And they were sharing their good news, their version of the gospel. And John said, if you listen to that, if you put your faith in that, it will ultimately deceive you. And so he says, little children, I don't want anyone to deceive you or lead you astray. The one who practices righteousness, the one who strives to live a consistently honorable life in private as well as in public, <laughs> and to conform to God's precepts. All right, so he's not just talking about the one who um, is nice or the one who is, uh, has southern hospitality. You know, Southern hospitality, where they're nice to your face, but they stab you in the back. Like, that's not, that's not what he's talking about. Not just talking about being polite. 
Not just talking about smiling at people or only posting things that are non-offensive. Uh, he says in, in public and in private, to practice righteousness is to conform your life to God's precepts. So I like that in the Amplified because that is what he's talking about here. And technically, uh, we're going to get into this, but you're going to see he's actually talking about love. Ultimately, practicing righteousness is living out love, love for God and love for others. This is what it means to practice righteousness, is to live out the law of love. And then he says, as well as in public, to conform to God's precepts uh, is righteous. Whoever practices those things is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin, however, separating himself from God and offending him by acts of disobedience, indifference, or rebellion, is of the devil and takes his inner character and moral values from the devil, not from God. For the devil has sinned and violated God's law from the beginning. The Son, however, the Son of God, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And that is the good news of the gospel. That is good news. That God has come, that Jesus has come, to destroy the works of the devil. And we've been seeing that at City Chapel, by the way. We've been seeing the destruction of the works of the devil. So even just last year, uh, I was preaching on walking in the light from 1 John. And somebody who's still a part of our church, somebody uh, uh, felt convicted by that. And they went home, threw away their bong, <laughs> dumped out their weed, and said, I need to start walking in the light. What is that? That is a destruction of the works of the devil. And the devil said, wait a minute, no, 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 you, you need that to relax. No, 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 you deserve that for all that you've been through. No, 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 you need to hold on. And, 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 and this person destroyed by the power of Jesus, not on their own strength, not on their own willpower, because they had tried several other times in their own strength, thanks, and in their own willpower. But this person, by the power of the Holy Spirit, destroyed the works of the devil, not the, not the belief system. Oftentimes, the enemy doesn't attack us in our belief system. Is, 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 the whole purpose of Christianity is not to get you to think differently, but to get you to, to live differently. And so it is the practices that he is concerned about. He's concerned about what you do. He's concerned about how you treat your spouse. He's concerned about how you treat your kids. He's concerned about what you post on Facebook. He's concerned about what you smoke. <laughs> He's concerned about what you turn to in times of stress. He's concerned about what you, what you look at on the internet. He's concerned about what you talk about with your girlfriends. He's concerned about your conversations. He's concerned about what you desire. He's concerned about your fantasies. He's concerned about your thought life. He's concerned about the way that you look at others. He's concerned about the way that you look at other people's churches. He's concerned about, I'm preaching to myself. He's concerned about the way that you look at other people's houses. He's concerned about what you think about when you see other people's vehicles. <laughs> He's concerned about who you vote for and then how you treat people who didn't vote for the same people that you voted for. <laughs> He's concerned about those things. He really is. He's not, he's, Christianity has not just come to church, say the right things, believe the right things. But there is a connection between what you uh, do and who you are. 
And the works of the devil, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy all of the things that I'm, that I'm talking about, which, which our culture pulls us in the wrong direction, pulls us towards a satanic way of looking at life. But he has come to destroy the works of the devil. And when he destroys the works of the devil, it's very evident in your life. This, this person literally hasn't picked up the weed. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm, I'm still talking to them. <clears throat> yeah, and, and that's exciting because that's something that's real. The world is looking, by the way, for something that's real. In this <clears throat> Jesus, he came <clears throat> to do something very real, to destroy the works of the devil. That's good news. He says, <clears throat> because of that, whoever is born of God, no one who is born of God, in verse 9, will deliberately, knowingly, or habitually practice sin. Because God's seed, and in parentheses, his principle of life, or the essence of his righteous character. Not your righteous character, but the essence of his righteous character inside of you remains permanently in him who is born again. Who is, that, that is, who is reborn from above, which we talked about last week. Spiritually transformed, renewed, set apart for his purpose. <laughs> and he who is born again cannot habitually live a life characterized by sin because he is born of God and longs to please him. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are clearly identified. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, who does not seek God's will and thought, action, and purpose is not of God. Nor is the one who does not unselfishly love his believing brother. Now, he's getting into that thing called love, which we'll get into. He's tying it into your love for God, how you treat others. And so we're going to get into that later. But just to, <clears throat> I do have three points today, so three basic points. My first point, if I can make it through uh, with enough water. I'll just, have to, <clears throat> I'll just have to say cheers multiple times today. And you guys, will, I don't know if you guys have water. We can all drink to that. <clears throat> drink to that. So in all my main points, we'll just, we'll just have to do that. Um, <clears throat> uh, my, I, I, I always have, I usually have three points. And so today I have three points as well. The first point is just <clears throat> some history for you. I want to talk to you about the people that he is writing about here. And um, specifically... Uh, he's reiterating something that he's already stated. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, If anyone uh, sins, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atonement. Um, we talked about that whenever I preached on that passage. Atonement, a good way to remember what that means is at one mint. Atonement is that thing which brings two opposites together. Two things which otherwise are separated, they come together and they are married within atonement. So atonement means that Christ is our at-one-ment. We come at oneness with God through Jesus. Now, this is important for us, but this is also important for you to understand that Jesus himself is the atonement because he himself created atonement in his own body. So before he was crucified, he was the atonement. Basically, as soon as Christmas morning came uh, and that shining star was over Bethlehem, the atonement happened. It's called, we call it the incarnation. Uh, 
It's where God became man, and he literally became man. And it's important that you understand that, and it's important that you know that the, the false teachers of, of John's day, they were, they, were, they were messing up their Christology. They were changing their Christology, which you can see, actually, we have um, chapter 4. I want to read to you just quickly from chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. We haven't even got there yet, but we will. But John is, is explicitly sharing what he's concerned about with regard to these false teachers. And he says this, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This, he says, is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard. It was coming and now is already in the world. And so what was happening, these false teachers, they were saying that Jesus Christ had come, but not necessarily in the flesh. It's a little hard to explain, but they would say that there was a division between Jesus, the eternal pre-existing Son of God, only begotten of the Father, slain from before the foundations of the world, that there was a, there was a somehow there was a separation between the pre-existent second person of the Godhead, Jesus, and Jesus' body. And, and sometimes even in modern teaching, you'll hear something like that. They're like, well, Jesus in his flesh desired this, but Jesus in his spirit decided that. And what they're doing is they're making a division <clears throat> between the divine, eternal, with the Father, one with the Father, very God of very God. They're making a division between that person of the Trinity, that God, and the body that he inhabited. They're basically drawing some kind of divisive line between his flesh and his spirit. Between like who he was as God and who he was as man. That as God, he felt this, but as man, he felt that. And sometimes people will even try, because it, it, it does help explain some things, right? It helps bring a little bit of clarity that Scripture doesn't always bring. All we know is that God became man. Which is different than to say that God merely put on man, like a jacket. Like he just clothed himself for a minute, but he was still fully God, but then he wasn't fully man. Or there are people who say he was fully man, but he wasn't fully God. He didn't know he was God, and then he became God whenever John baptized him. And there was some teaching like that. In some way, they said, Jesus, the eternal preexistent one with the Father, and Jesus, the guy we saw walking around here who pooped and peed in the same bathroom that we did. Like, there was some, there was some separation between those two guys. All right? They're not the exact same. <laughs> I mentioned Jesus going to the bathroom. That was a big deal. I don't know. It's funny. It's hilarious. I know. Madden's starting to listen to my sermons now. She says, Dad, you're kind of funny sometimes. Thanks. Appreciate that. Hopefully it's not just funny. Hopefully we're destroying the works of the devil here. That's what, that's what I want to see is the works of the devil crucified. Because what happens is if you divide the, the divinity of Christ from the humanity of Christ, then you will also divide the divinity of the seed of God that's been planted in you and the humanity of your own life. Whenever you divide spirit from flesh and you believe those two cannot mingle, then that will flow out of a, a bad Christology into a bad uh, version of yourself. 
Because Jesus is our at one And when we see Jesus, we see literally humanity folded into divinity. We see God not just clothing himself, because some people believe that God clothed himself with man, right? But then he kind of took off that clothes when he went back up into heaven. But that's not what happened. God has permanently become man. Like when Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father for the first time in all eternity, which happens to be a really long time, for the first time in all eternity, there was a human in heaven on the throne. Which is why he says has come instead of came. God came in the flesh would mean at one point he came, but this is the perfect tense, meaning he has come and he still is. He has come in the flesh and he still is in the flesh. A resurrected flesh, which is slightly different than what we have, but still flesh nonetheless. Which is why when we imagine the, you know, the, the beautiful day in Bethlehem when Jesus was born and we celebrate Christmas, it was, it was, it was history-altering because a million years from now, we are going to be bowing down at the feet of a human. Never before did angels ever worship a human. Because never before was a human worthy of worship. <laughs> and yet this human is fully God and fully human. And so it's important that you understand that because if you don't understand that, you'll never understand how Jesus is the at one Jesus is the marriage between God and man. Jesus didn't just clothe himself. He literally took on the nature of man and what theologians call the hypostatical union or the connection between a God nature and a human nature. And he married those two. And in so doing, he redeemed humanity. He became a new version of man. A pure man, a holy man, a God man. Uh, the Greek word is theanthropos. Theos from God and anthropos from man. The, the God man, the theanthropos. And, and, and John says this is very important because these false teachers have twisted who Jesus is. And they believe that because they, because honestly they don't believe that divinity and humanity can dwell together. That's the problem. And because they don't believe that divinity and humanity can dwell together. Then when they approach teaching humans, they say things like, well, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a divinity part of you, right? There's a saved part of you. There's a holy part of you. There's a God seed inside of you, as John said. But that doesn't really affect this because that's in here. And then you have this thing out here. And basically this thing out here, this flesh, this body, these hands and legs and stuff, this doesn't really affect that in there. There's, a, there's, this, there's this kind of, there's this gulf between really who you are and what you do. There's a, there's a gap. And so they said, hey, as long as you're human, you're going to do bad things and you can't really affect it. You can't really change it. You can't really have freedom. You can just have forgiveness. You just, you just the inside of you gets washed. The inside of the cup gets washed, but the outside of the cup remains dirty. Because, well, you know, there's just a gap. There's a, dis, a difference. And even nowadays, if you start reading on this passage, if you do any study on this passage, it, this passage appears so harsh to say that Christians do not sin. People have a really hard time making that gel with their own experience. And so they'll often adjust Scripture a little bit to fit their experience. And the, instead of saying, maybe my experience isn't, isn't right. 
Maybe I haven't experienced all that God has for me. Maybe, maybe I need, maybe there's more. Instead of that, they'll say things like, well, there, there is this pure holy thing inside of me that is positionally righteous, but practically speaking, we're still stuck in sin until we die. But that is what John is arguing against. That's what he's, that's what he's fighting against. That is what he is warring against, this idea that there is a difference between who I am and what I do. And you'll, people in secular circles will say the same thing. Well, you know, just because I did that, that, I, that that's not who I am. <laughs> Sometimes even in their apology, right? I'm so sorry I did that. That's not really who I am. Okay. So that was somebody else took over your body? Is that, is that what happened? You were suddenly possessed by something? No, who you are does what you do. And, and what you do reflects and it should be a sign to you of who you are now if you don't like what you do then that means you don't like who you are and if you don't like who you are well there's hope for you and me people like us who have looked in the mirror and not liked what we've seen and so my second my, my last two points are really two different ways that I think people who are watching here uh, from home today, people who are in the room and people who are watching later on, uh, two different ways that we would respond to this, to this kind of message. I think there are two kinds of people, basically, um, two extremes, I suppose, uh, probably within every church that is listening uh, uh, to this. I was listening to one pastor, um, oh, what's his name, the uh, I always want to say pots, but that's not that's not it. That was a professor of mine in Bible college. Um, he's a, he's just he's a he's a bit of a Calvinist. I don't agree with everything he says, but he was teaching John Piper. Yeah, not pots. Piper. Uh, Piper was was preaching this passage to his church, right? And 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 and, and while I don't agree with everything that he takes away from it, the way he approaches it, he 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 identified these two different extremes, and I thought it was very good and it's very helpful he said basically there are proud people he said presumptuous but there are like proud people and then there are people who are uh this causes them to become discouraged there are people who are discouraged and so i want to talk to both of those people today first off i i hope and pray that as we read this passage if you are one of the proud people that this passage kind of slaps you in the face <laughs> i hope it i hope it steps on your toes a little bit by proud, I don't mean like, you know, businessman uh, in, in a private jet kind of proud. I mean proud like you haven't thought about sin this week with regard to you. You've recognized it in other people. <laughs> You're like, man, they need, they need some help. They need some prayer. Pastor, could you please pray for, you know, like you've recognized it in other people. But when it comes to you. You haven't really thought about sin in your own life. Like maybe not only for this week, but maybe like a month, maybe six months. Maybe it's been years since you've looked in the mirror of Scripture and said, do I live up to that? Maybe it, it, it happens slowly, right? It happens so slowly. There's this quiet loss of character through compromise. And yet, a maintaining of confidence. That's what I mean by pride. Confidence without character. Confidence with compromise. Which, by the way, is what the early uh, false teachers were offering. 
You can have confidence that you're a child of God. Why? Because Jesus did something inside of you. You don't see it in your life, but trust him, it's there. And it's a quick, easy way to get confidence. Yes, okay, he says it, I believe it. That is who you are. Yes, that is who I am. Okay, I, I, I am, you know, I am righteous. I have the righteousness of Christ inside of me. I am him. I don't see it in my life, but I am. It's a quick, cheap way of confidence. I say it's cheap because it, it doesn't cost you very much. <laughs> Literally, you don't have to go home and throw away any bongs or dump out any weed. You don't have to toss out any alcohol bottles. Because, you know, you are something on the inside that you are not on the outside. And by golly, that's just who I am. And you, it, it happens quickly. You, you, can, you, can, you can receive it right today, just right now, sitting right here in your chair. You can receive that kind of confidence. But it's cheap confidence. It doesn't cost you very much. And it doesn't really do the trick. Because over time, your conscience condemns you again. And your conscience condemns you again. And then you need to sing that song again. And you need to be in that atmosphere again. And you need to do all that stuff in order to feel the confidence that you felt. And so to you, to the prideful people, I pray that this passage just steps on your toes, slaps you in the face, makes you run back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. I pray that it forces you to run back to 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you haven't confessed anything in a while, you might want to think about this passage. The, am, I, am I open to the idea of sin in my life? Do I see sin in my life the same way that God does? Am I, am I repentant? Am I humble? Am I recognizing my need for God or have I come to such a place that I can have confidence without conviction, confidence with compromise, confidence with lack of character? This is a serious thing and it can happen to anybody. It can happen to pastors. In fact, I have a picture that uh, I, I gave to the tech team. Like we were at the library this, this past Friday. We were at the Buda Library and I was sorting through the Christian books. And uh, I don't know if you guys recognize this, but this is Own the Moment by a guy who CNN says is not your typical Sunday preacher. And they were right about that. Uh, his name's Carl Lentz. At this point, he's the lead pastor of Hillsong, New York City. Until this past October, whenever Brian Houston, the lead pastor of all Hillsong churches, uh, fired him for having multiple affairs, spanning, uh, we're not even sure how long, and he, what did he say for uh, bad leadership codes and something about lying uh, and lying about lying? <laughs> Now, you know, I, I saw that book, I pulled it out, and man, I just, it grieved my heart because. Here's a guy who, who loves Jesus, who, who preaches really pretty good sermons, actually. You can find him on YouTube, who, who's leading a very successful church, who's doing great things for God, yet somewhere along the way, he maintained his confidence and lost his character. And maybe before you own the moment, you should make sure Jesus owns your heart. And maybe you should continually check in with Jesus to make sure that he still owns your heart. Because if there's one thing I know, just even from my own life, my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I definitely don't know it. And it always is telling me I'm okay. It's always telling me I'm good. It's always telling me that everything's fine. 
right? But this, the, 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 everything's not fine. And the, and the problem is, the, the greatest problem is not that you would end up, you know, as a disgraced pastor, because he still has his like 3.7 million vacation home. And he's still, like, he's still rolling with Justin Bieber. And like, he's still doing all his stuff. But, but the, the problem is not what you face here and now. The problem is that you could be deceived until you die and then you wake up in eternity before the judgment seat of Christ. And you say, didn't we prophesy in your name? And then didn't we do many miracles in your name? And weren't we your kids? Weren't we your servants? Weren't, didn't we work for you? And he'll say, yes, you worked for me, but I never knew you. you, you your characters eeped, eeped out through the cracks in your life. And sin took over, and what happens, and, 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 and sometimes young people especially will be like, well, I'm just going to do my thing now, and then I'll repent later, and I'll turn to God later. The problem is, the more deeply you entrench yourself in sin, the deeper the roots go, the less able you are to turn away. You can even read these passages and be like, ooh, that doesn't make me feel good. And yet, you, you, you love your sin so much. That you ignore it. That there are many people who are much older, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, even on their deathbed. And they cannot let go of that thing which is rooted in their heart. And so that's why I pray that you come to church and that we don't just encourage you in your sin. Uh, I want City Chapel to be the most welcoming, loving place that anybody with any background, with any skin color, with any sexual orientation, with any issue can walk in and be loved and be accepted and be welcomed and feel that in real positive ways. But then I really want you to come across scriptures like this. Not because I hate you and I, and I want to and, and beat you up. No, but because I do love you and because people are worth it. People are worth the truth. People are worth freedom. People are worth knowing that, that, that there's not a distinction between who you are and what you do, that what you do is connected to who you are and that you can actually change who you are and what you do. Not through behavioralism, not through learning a new set of rules and standards, but by being transformed from the inside, getting a new DNA. The seed of God can come inside of you. So don't go home and try harder. <laughs> go home and, 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 and do what 1 John 1, 9 says. Confess your sins. And allow him to cleanse you, allow him to forgive you, and allow him to give you a new DNA, the DNA of his own son that will transform you from the inside. Because John says here, whoever has that DNA, that seed of God, sperma, have fun with that. Whoever has the seed of God <laughs> will not sin because there is this thing inside of them pushing them toward righteousness, pushing them toward holiness. A really good question to ask yourself, and this is something I was talking to. Well, you can take his face off if you want. That's fine. He's, he's like staring at me. Like, the whole time, it's, 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 it's distracting. Um, but uh, no, I was talking to Micah uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my, my nine-year-old son, and we're talking about what it means to make God the boss of your life or the Lord of your life. And I said, basically, one, one thing that it means is that we always... Um, we always ask the question, is this pleasing to God? For everything. 
And so he's into audiobooks now, and which means he's, which I'm slightly concerned about, me and Ro are talking about, like, are these audiobooks good? Because uh, we can't, unlike a movie, we can't, like, watch it with them to see if it's good, because I don't have three days to sit and listen to an audiobook, okay? He loves it, though. And so, but it's good for him to have some personal responsibility with his walk with God. That it's not just mom and dad telling him what's right and wrong. And so I'm starting to ask him the question, is it pleasing to God? Is the book pleasing to God? Does it exemplify the things that God says are good? Does it, does it villainize the things God says are bad? <laughs> You're like, oh, man, I'm, I might need to look at my own. Yeah, maybe go back to your own music. Is this pleasing to God? To the movies that you're watching, is this pleasing to God? If you've, if you've been living multiple weeks and months and years without asking that question about anything that you're doing, listening to, being entertained by, spending your money on, you might want to stop and say, wait a minute, do I even know if my life is pleasing to God? And so I pray that for those who are prideful, meaning those who are just confident in themselves and in their own righteousness and in, and in, and in, and in an experience that they had years ago, I would pray that this passage would grab a hold of you and shake you and say, is your life pleasing to God? Because it must be. Every aspect of your life must be pleasing to God. It's important. It's not, it's not a rule, but this is if you have the seed of God inside of you. Do you remember when you were first saved? You asked that question about everything. You were always wanting to please God. You were always wanting to do what God wanted you to do. And somewhere along the line, presumption, pride slips in there, quiet, a compromise mixed with a continued confidence in yourself or in an experience or in your knowledge or in your theology or in the fact that you're still tuning in once every six weeks. <laughs> yes, I'm talking to you. Uh, you know, and, and, and suddenly that becomes a substitute. And by the way, this is, I'll borrow a point from Wednesday night sermon. Uh, speaking in tongues is not a substitute for spiritual growth. So many of the things that are really good and wonderful things are not substitutes for spiritual growth. How do I grow spiritually? Well, read your Bible every day. Pray every day, attend church or some kind of uh, uh, Christian community. Some of our folks can't attend church right now, right? And so they're meeting in, the, in their front porches with people, but they're a part of Christian community, right? So, and continually ask the question, is this pleasing to God? Because you'll know because you're reading your Bible what is and what isn't pleasing to God. You'll know because you're spending time in prayer what is and what is not pleasing to God. And, I, and, and that's why John says, I don't, I don't need to teach you anything. Because you have the Spirit of God inside of you. But we can get, uh, I guess, we can get to the point where we don't feel like we need the Spirit of God inside of us anymore. Because we're not even asking the question. We're not even curious. And so to the second group of people, and this is my final point, is those who would be, uh, we have the prideful and then, then you have the poor. Um, meaning those who are discouraged those who lack uh, spiritual strength, uh, those who, who, who hear this passage and it, to them it piles on greater condemnation, like, oh, see, I'll never get it right. And so to you, I, wanna, I, wa- I want to encourage you to the same passage, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that if anyone sins, we have an advocate, we have an at one There is somebody who has made a perfect union between, between God and man. Therefore, it's not impossible for you. 
And even you, as weak as you are, and as poor as you are, you are a candidate for the grace of God. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Matthew chapter 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I've often thought that that was a misprint because what do you, how, can you, how can God say it's a blessing to be poor in spirit when every Sunday I spend hours preparing a message to enrich in people's spiritual walks? Like the entire motive of the church is to take people who have nothing spiritually and deposit some wealth inside of them. <laughs> and Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Well, I, I, I have seen that that is true, though. I've seen that people who, who save up revelation um, end up, they don't put it into practice, but they save it. They attend church every Sunday, and they take notes in their Bible, and they stash it in their Bible, and their Bible collects dust all week long, and then they come back, and they take more notes, and then their Bible collects more dust, and they take more notes, and their Bible collects more dust. I have noticed, because that's what rich is. Rich is you have more than you need to live. You got a nice fat savings account. That's what it means to be rich. You got investments in different places, you got a diversified portfolio. That's what it means to be rich. You got you got you get you, you have houses, you have multiple vehicles, multiple houses. You have you have depth financially. You can take a hit and you'll be fine. That's what it means to be rich. But poor means you're right on the edge. Poor means you have enough Maybe for today, maybe, but then you don't know how you're going to eat tomorrow. And you wake up every day saying, I might have enough for breakfast, but I don't know that I have enough for dinner. You wake up every month saying, okay, we have enough to pay this bill, that bill, and that bill. We don't have enough to pay that bill. And you're having to decide between buying birthday presents and paying light bills. That's what poverty is. Poverty is not having enough. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who feel that they don't have enough uh, money, spiritual money in their spiritual bank to pay for the spiritual bills that are coming due. <laughs> he said, blessed are those guys. Because I've also heard people preach, well, blessed are those who realize that they are poor, right? Because everybody's poor in spirit. That's not true. Not everybody is poor in spirit. Some people are very wealthy in spirit. They, they, have, they, have, they have so much more revelation than they have spent. Literally, they can, they can sit down and tell you for hours stuff they know that they've never put into practice. <laughs> stuff that they have learned, great points, wonderful points of sermons, things that really stuck out to them. Pastor Harry was doing that series, and that series was amazing, and this was amazing, and that time in worship was amazing, and then all these experiences, all this wealth of knowledge and experience, and this much expenditure. It's just sitting there, in their, in their memory, in their, in their life, and they're, they're proud of it, and they're, they're happy that they have it, because it makes them feel confident. That's what riches will do. It'll make you feel confident that you can survive Difficult times because I have all this wealth. Look at this. Look at all that I know. And then the divorce hits. And then, uh, you know, teenagers hit. And then life. And then, and then, and then they're fired from their physical job. And, and, and they notice that when their financial 
money runs out. Their spiritual power runs out. And they realize their confidence wasn't really in God. It was in their bank account, their spiritual bank account. They had this history with them. They've been going to church all these years. They've been, they served for this long. This is how long I served. Look how, look, look how much, look how much, look how much I've sowed into the kingdom. Look how much, look how much heavenly riches I have up there, stocked up, but not put into practice. And so the key to becoming poor is to spend more than you make. <laughs> this is the key to becoming poor, everybody. So go out and do not do that. Uh, that's, <laughs> but spiritually do it. Spiritually, everything you receive, spend it. Every revelation, put, put it into practice. And so I had this thought uh, that I thought might just be able to help explain a little bit. Pete, were we ever able to get, were we ever able to get weights? You, you have some weights? Cool. Well, yeah, if you could come up and set that up. I just wanted to end the sermon just by um, publicly humiliating myself. And um, why, why you enjoy that? That's not the part you're supposed to clap at. That's not, that's not the Holy Ghost moment. Um, uh, but no, uh, I, I, I want to look at 2 Corinthians 12, 19. It was interesting this past week. Um, Somebody, I was praying for someone, and I just really sensed this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And um, so I texted it to them. And then later on that day, somebody else texted me from the church, and I just copied and pasted uh, the exact same message. Um, because it's what God is saying right now, I think, to a lot of us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 talks about, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about a time when he had a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what that thorn in the flesh means necessarily. There's been a lot of debate about that. Um, but what we do know is that it was difficult for Paul, and he didn't want it in his life. And so he was asking God to remove it. Um, and he said he prayed three times, which I, I guess that's a lot for him. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he asked God three times. I'm like, man, I've, I've been praying a long time. So maybe I'm doing something wrong. I don't know. But he, play, he prayed three times. didn't happen. And he did get a response, though, from God. And uh, Jesus, he said, spoke to him. And Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. That alone like, is, a, is a, just an amazing statement. My grace is sufficient for you. Grace is God's power to do what he's called us to do. So, so uh, the, apostle, uh, the apostle Paul has set up this, this scenario in his head that there's this difficulty and, it, and it's hurting him and it's weakening him. And he says that he prayed about it, and then he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Then he says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that is, my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's so unlike what we would say in this very situation. <laughs> Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So we would say, therefore, I will wait for God to increase my strength. Or I will pray that he increases my strength, because if he'll increase my strength, then I can power through this. Like he's the strength giver, miracle worker. Like he's, he's going to give me strength. 
And there are passages where God gives people strength. For sure, right? Isaiah uh, tells us about those that wait on the Lord. But even that passage, right? Isaiah, is it 59? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It didn't say they shall get more strength. They just renew the strength they already have. So, there you go. Shall renew their strength. Bring it back up to ground zero. Then it says, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Notice how you start flying, then you run, and then basically most of life is just walking. (laughs) We want to fly all the time, but sometimes you're flying, sometimes you're running, most of the time you're just walking. Because God's not about... Wow. That's just that that's only 25 pounds? Yeah, it looks kind of big. So God's <laughs> I thought 25 would be smaller. Uh, God's not just concerned with giving you this superpower strength. Because look, he says, My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so in my mind, when I thought about weakness, I thought, man, how could I explain to the church what it means to be weak? And then I thought. Pete's got some weights, right? Like, I could just be up there with all of my, my 128 pounds. It's including my hair. It all weighs 128 pounds. And I'm like, I could try to lift. I could try to bench press something. So what is this? This is like 100 pounds right about? 95. 95? Sure. I haven't bench pressed. For, I haven't tried this. I don't know what's going to happen. 25 years. Right. Like 30 years ago, I tried lifting weights one time, and it was fun. Um, so much fun. I haven't tried it again since. But I just, thought, I just thought maybe this could be a demonstration. My humiliation could be a bit of an example to you because I think many of us feel this way, like spiritually, just even just looking at this. Good Lord, that looks big. Um, just, even, you know, just even just looking at it and looking at what I know my power is, um, is kind of intimidating. And I think we read passages like this, and it's intimidating for people. And so anyway, so I, I just thought I would give that a shot to see if there's weakness here. Maybe you can make sure, make sure I don't die. Yeah, yeah. yeah just that, that would be cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, okay, here's, here's this. All right, so this way I can still preach and, and forward. Okay. There you go. All right, how's that? Okay. All right, so yeah, so, I, so I, <clears throat> this way I can still preach and uh, deal with, all right, okay, so it's up, and then I'm supposed to bring it forward and then bring it down, all right, it's got to touch my chest, wow, okay, okay, uh, chest out, uh, now push, well, I'm trying, hold on a second, <laughs> Hold, no, 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 it's okay. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, okay. I feel the endorphins. Right through me. No, 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 it's okay. Um, okay, so um, hopefully that was a good demonstration of weakness. We're literally, like, I, I got to about here, and that's where things just 
like the extra, <clears throat> man, so, yeah, yeah, I think the sticking, that's what they call a sticking point. Man, there are so many sticking points in life where you, you start and you're like, I think I can do this. And then <laughs> you get about there and suddenly your chest muscles, I suppose, are supposed to be there and they're, they're not. And so <laughs> you, hit a, you hit a sticking point. But I think like that's, that's a picture of what God does. He, so, so here's the deal. The, the Holy Spirit is not the, the super soldier serum. I don't know if you guys have been watching Falcon and, uh, and, and, and the Winter Soldier. But for us really spiritual people, we've been watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And like I was watching that the other uh, night, and it's like, this is what we think the Holy Spirit is sometimes. He's this blue serum that if we stick it in our arm, we will become super Christians. We'll just, we'll walk on all kinds of stuff, step on the devil, we'll, <clears throat> we'll do all kinds of great, wonderful, powerful things because we, because we you know, we received him. But he's not, uh, he's not, he's not a super serum. He's not looking, because he's not looking for super soldiers. In fact, I think he allows life to build up. He wants it, like this is why originally Pete was like, oh, you can just use just the, just, just the bar. And I'm like, no, I think I can do the bar. Just the bar, you know, 75 pounds or 45. I, th- I, th- I think I can handle that. The problem is what God does is he piles things up beyond what we can handle. And he wants us to feel the weight of that. Because why? Because his strength is made perfect in weakness. Not because he wants to give you strength, but because he wants you to be weak. Christians say all the time things like, I don't know how I could do it without Jesus. I don't know how people do it without Jesus. To be honest, people do it without Jesus all the time. Just look around. People go through all kinds of devastation without Jesus. How do they do it? Well, they get out the weed, for one. They get out some alcohol. They, 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 they get addicted to sex. The, to do it without, just think about all the stuff that Jesus says you can't do. <laughs> it's all the stuff that makes it easier to get through stuff. It's almost like Jesus wants to isolate us on a bench and get us to a sticking point. Where we're like, I can't do this. And then, like Peter, reaches in and his strength is made perfect. His strength is made perfect. His strength. He says, Paul says, therefore I will most gladly boast in my weakness. To boast is to lift something up. Is to elevate, is to emphasize something. I think, I think the King James says, I will glory in my weakness. It means I will put the most weight, glory is weight, I will put the most emphasis and weight on my weakness. Because when I am weak, then his power may rest on me. This is my encouragement. Why don't you let the power of God rest? When it, like, this is, this is our problem. As soon as the power of God comes to us, we put it to work. As soon as it comes to our door, we're like, hey, uh, we got a leak over here in the kitchen, and um, uh, the bathroom is kind of flooding a little bit, and um, there's this issue. Where I don't know what's going on with the roof, and uh, <clears throat> we put it to work. No, he says, we, when you're trying to 
perform all the time, yes, you're going to put the power of God to work because you're going to see it as a help to make you look like a better Christian. But what if God doesn't want you to look like a better Christian? (laughs) What if he wants you to be a son of God? Would you just let the power of God rest? Like, let it kick its feet up for a minute? Get it some iced tea? <laughs> here's, here's my couch, power of God. Come sit with me. What's on your mind? Oftentimes, we're just, we're, we're so worried about this pressure that's on us. When more pressure is on you than power is within you, that's where God will meet you. That's where he shows up. When more pressure is on you than power is within you, that's where God will meet you. And he doesn't meet you to suddenly give you more power. Because still, then it's about you and it's about how you look. And, and I get it. As, as American Christians, we've been so, I think, manipulated and abused to believe that our version of how we make Jesus look somehow affects the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> And so, and so I get it. We've been indoctrinated in this whole idea that I need to be a good Christian so that my sister will go to heaven. So that my coworkers won't hate God. I need to be nice. I need to be kind. I need to be all this stuff so that these other people will believe in God. What? <laughs> Who told you? You don't save anybody. God's trying to save you. It is about you and God. There's a, there's a story where a Mahat, Mahatma Gandhi, is that how you pronounce it? Mahatma Gandhi? This is like one of the biggest like spiritual, secular spiritual gurus of like the 20th century. He was exploring Christianity. He's born a Hindu and he ended up going back to Hinduism and some version of Hinduism, like his version. And, and uh, anyway, he became very influential. And uh, there was a time, though, earlier in his life, he was exploring Christianity. He came over to the States, met with several Christian leaders, yada, yada, yada. He was really looking into Christianity. And, and uh, he ended up famously saying, um, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. And so he turned from Christianity. And so, I mean, so many times I've heard preachers take that quote from a pagan <clears throat> who said that he liked Jesus but didn't like, like Christians and use it basically to condemn Christians that, man, if you guys were more like Christ, you know, Gandhi probably would have stuck with Christianity. And then more people would have been saved. And it's, and, it's, and it's crazy, and it's not true at all. Gandhi didn't like Christ. Period. Gandhi liked himself. Gandhi liked his Hinduism. And after his wife died <clears throat> in, the <clears throat> in, in the mid-50s, I think it was, he also liked sleeping with naked young girls to, I guess, test his levels of temptation and blah, blah, blah. I don't know what the deal was. Like his relatives. Like it was it's bizarre. He didn't like Christ. And all of the good little Christians in the world could not have saved him. And all the good little Christians in your life can't save you either. You're not saved by other Christians being good Christians. We're saved by the, by, the, by the power of Jesus approaching us in our sin. And it's until you are sick of your sin, there's no amount of good Christians that are going to convince you that Jesus is a better way. Because let's face it, if you're looking for strength, Jesus is not a better way. 
Jesus will not strengthen you and make you super strong serum Christian. He's, he's, he, he will push you to the point of weakness. He will isolate all of your other little helps that you would have turned to in these times of trouble. He will get rid of all of those things. And then he'll let you sit there in your weakness and you'll say, are you ready for me yet? Are you ready for me yet? Are you ready for me yet? And, and, and why? Because he wants to be glorified. This is why people turn to Satanism, right? This is why Aleister Crowley wrote the, the book of Satan. Because the purpose, Satan came to him and said, I am for humanity. And in some ways, Satan's right. God is actually for God. And God believes that humanity's best path forward is to trust him and give up of themselves and become this, 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 this communion between God and man. But Satan is for the separation of God and man. And, the, and the, the rising of man in and of his own strength and of his own power. But, but, but that, that, that's why all cults ultimately mess up who Jesus is. So we'll get into that in chapter 4. They ultimately twist who Jesus is because you have to. But when Jesus comes in his realness, he'll meet you at the point of absolute sticking point. Didn't know it was called that. But many Christians are stuck. But there is a blessing in the sticking point because the sticking point is where God meets you. Where you are stuck is where God will meet you. And in fact, he's been waiting for you to get stuck. <laughs> All the stuff you could do on your own, that was preliminary to get you to a place where you're stuck. Where he's like, yes, okay, now. And uh, it's, like, it's like Bob Hamp said in our, in our Kairos. He said, how do you glorify a dentist? Well, you have perfectly good teeth, right? No. Perfectly good teeth means you have good oral hygiene. Nobody's like, who's your dentist? Your teeth look great. Me, on the other hand, <laughs> I open up my mouth and I say, look, I got this filling. I got this crown back here. I have this root canal. How do you glorify a dentist? You open up your mouth and say, ah. You allow him to work on your stuff. And as he works on your stuff and as he fixes stuff, that brings glory to him because he's a great dentist. Because he did a really good job, not of making me have good dental hygiene. My wife has great dental hygiene. She, nobody knows who her dentist is. I don't even know who her dentist is. I don't think she has a dentist. <clears throat> my dentist is my cousin, and he's been awesome ever since I was 14 years old. <clears throat> I, have ne I have needed him uh, so many times. <clears throat> so many times he's come through for me. And, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a good, good dentist. It's who he is. It's who he is. Uh, it's who he is. And, uh, <laughs> and so how does God glorify himself in, in our lives? In our weakness. When we open up our mouth and say, I need, I need this, I need this, I need this. And so let's go to prayer right now. Father, for those watching at home, for those here in the room. I believe you're calling many 